Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Tehran and Sanofia edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I have two co-hosts. I'm Felix Hammond Fusion. I have two co-hosts. I have Jordan Weisman. Hello. Who has no idea what Tehran is. Is it Gaelic? I have You're not even gonna Anna Shemansky. Hello. Who has no idea what Sanofia is. Nope. And so, um, yeah, I, these they're famously two important characters on Game of Thrones. No, Never Jordan watched an took episode. Me. <laughs> I actually, I like started searching. Like, I was like, no, that's not true. That's... <laughs> Um, I've never watched Game of Thrones, but I'm pretty sure there are two characters called Tyran and Sanofia. We are going to find out what Tyran and Sanofia are later on in this episode. We are going to talk about cryptocurrencies. Um, not so much investing in them, not so much whether they have any value, but just the question of trading them. Is this something where, like, those red-blooded Wall Street trader people who can make money just by trading them up and down. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Neom, which is, I think, a character from The Matrix. <laughs> and um, Mohammed bin Salman is 32. I hold that that name is connected to The Matrix. So, yeah, I mean, The Matrix came out when he was, what, like 19 or something? Oh, Younger than that. <laughs> so, wait, it's entirely possible that a Saudi prince is naming his $500 billion dollar That's what I'm thinking. Vaguely after his favorite sci-fi character. Yep, um, that's amazing. I also need to say that at the end of this show, Jordan, Anna, and I are going to wonk out about net interest margins, banks, funding costs, and all manner of incredibly wonky things I, about interest rates. We're going to answer the question of why bankers are so so obsessed with high interest rates or higher they are interest higher rates. interest they just rates. they want yes. the fed to or some bankers want the fed to raise rates why is that we will answer that question if you are a slate plus member at the end of this show if you are not a slate plus member it is easy to become one if you go to slate.com slash money plus anyway let's talk about the first story in over a year, I think, which has completely displaced Donald Trump from my nuzzle feed. It's really taken over the national discourse, this huge post-Weinstein explosion of stories about shitty, horrible men and their sexual harassment. And um, 
it's I feel like there's this huge like sort of cathartic oh my god we can talk about this and we can fire this these people now moment going on in America and this has happened even on Wall Street if Fidelity Investments counts, counts on Wall Street. Yeah. I mean, it kind of does. It counts. It's, it's by side. They're in Boston somewhere. Yeah. Um, so, Anna, what happened at Fidelity? So at Fidelity, two portfolio managers were actually let go. And although we haven't received many, many details, it's definitely clear that it was because of sexual harassment violations. And particularly of one older manager who uh, apparently there were just a number of violations over an extended period of time. And Fidelity had been known as actually caring a bit more about its female employees than other firms. So I think people were surprised. One of the few Wall Street firms which is run by a woman. Yes. But the other problem that Fidelity has is actually how their bonus structure works, because it's very dependent on your superiors' reviews. And so that really causes a lot of people to not want to push back if there's any type of harassment, sexual or otherwise. So it's happening everywhere um, that, that people are finally getting fired for this. And some of the news which has come out, I feel like the the sort of financial, the sort of economics of sexual harassment, you know, hot take of the week was, oh, my God. Bill O'Reilly settled a sexual harassment suit for $32 million with one woman. Yeah, and that is, I mean, that is an incredible amount. And it's interesting that he, you know, obviously actually paid it himself. The company didn't pay it. So, yeah, so there were a few of these suits that got quietly paid off by 21st Century Fox, mostly with regard to Roger Ailes more yes. than although there Bill were O'Reilly. some with, with Bill O'Reilly as well. And um, it- yeah, and... And then he just sort of eventually, maybe after Roger Ailes got ousted, realized that Fox wasn't going to be paying these things off for him. So he just started doing it himself. Yes. And I would actually argue that it's not the money itself that is the big deal here. Because even though I know $32 million sounds like a lot of money. It the, is a lot of money. It is a lot of money. But if you're talking about a company like Fox, I mean, if, like the, even like the $20 million with Gretchen Carlson, these are big amounts. These are not huge amounts for the company itself. But what is an issue is who it involves. And this is why it actually is material for the company. It's not that they that they paid out this money or that Bill O'Reilly paid out this money. It's that this money is related to some of the most important people in their company being ousted. And and yeah, being uh, being allowed to keep their jobs basically. It's, it's and then it's, well, and then yeah. eventually having to be let go. So to me, this is an interesting part of the story. And I, I think I just want to kind of clarify what I think you're you're getting at here is the the story here isn't really just oh God, Bill O'Reilly was shelling out tons of hush money in these settlements, and you know Fox at one point was too. It's that. Um, they were not reporting it to their shareholders. And even if you say, well, the money wasn't large, the amount of money involved wasn't large enough to merit a disclosure, it was not financially significant, um, the risk posed to their whole business model, the fact that eventually um, was significant enough. And in fact, we're, we've kind of seen what that risk has now done. I mean, Bill O'Reilly had to leave and has been replaced by someone who probably is not <laughs> Tucker Carlson, right. is not Bill O'Reilly. Um, so- uh, and more to the point, I mean, in terms of the business of 21st century fox like who is in that 10 p.m slot is much less important than the question of 
will the company be able to buy the 50% of Sky that it doesn't already own? And if it has been making all of these settlements and looking the other way, as Bill O'Reilly has been making settlements, then that makes it much less likely that that deal is going to be allowed to go through. Exactly. And that's why this is material. It's, so, I mean, look, obviously, we all know that these, you know, what's been happening at Fox, what's been happening in all these places is disgusting. But I think what makes this somewhat of an interesting financial story is the fact that up until very recently, i.e. the most recent financial um, reports, Fox and none of these companies ever report when they pay out this money. It just gets kind of tucked in. And that's important because as an investor, you don't know that there's this massive risk going on at the top of the company. When you're talking about O'Reilly's show, that was like, it pulled in like $450 million in like two years. So at what point is someone important enough to a company where their bad behavior merits a line in a like quarterly report? It's tough. Even? I mean, they usually have like the key man risk. Yeah. How do you define, um, how do you how do you define, define key, man? key man? I mean, though? it's, I mean, <laughs> Roger Ailes definitely was. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, so I would say it's quite easy that if someone is important enough to a company that the company is willing to pay like hush money to make a sexual harassment case go away, then prima facie, they're important enough that it, it should be disclosed. Yeah. Although almost any company will pay money to make a sexual harassment for almost any for almost any employee, a company will pay money to make the sexual harassment case. I don't away. think that's true. I think the vast majority of low-level employees, if they get caught, you know, being handsy or so, or worse, like they just get fired, and that's what should happen. And you need to be pretty senior for the company to value you enough to like. Well, I think not fire. I you. think that's pretty patently untrue from everything. Well, I guess it depends on what your defi- definition of low level is. But I think this past year and and the uh, you know. Uh, revelations about what's happening at Uber and everywhere else is that what we've learned is that no, companies don't fire these low-level people. They keep them around. They okay, move they, them around. They, might, well, they d- might not fire them, but they don't it dep- pay money to make the yeah. problems go Although away. I- they don't you know, settle suits like that. I would argue that it very much has to do with whether they are a quote-unquote high performer or not. Yeah. Right. Every company I've ever seen, like... <laughs> if people are engaging in this type of behavior, but they're still bringing a lot of money to the company... The company is almost certainly not going to fire them. That's that's why I actually think what we've been seeing over the past you know few months is actually kind of interesting because this is not normally what has happened, right? You know, but there, and then there's another very interesting angle to all of this, which is why did Bill O'Reilly personally pay thirty two million dollars to settle this suit? This is actually a substantial amount of money for him, even if it's not for Fox News, and a lot of the reaction to this news was oh my God, what unbelievably unspeakable things did he do to merit this $32 million settlement? And I'm sure that he did. And there was talk about non-consensual sex in the um, complaint, and which is also known as rape. And that's you know definitely incredibly awful. Um, but the financial calculus was really interesting. What was happening was that Lee Wheel filed this suit with like surgical precision. Mm-hmm. Um, she brought it to him just as his contract was coming up. And after Roger Ailes had already been fired, so his kind of like, you know, harassy boss had already left, who was, you know, sympathetic to him. And in the context of an environment where if she had gone public with this, there was no way he was going to get re signed. And 
So he knew at the same at the same time he knew that Fox desperately wanted to re-sign him because Megyn Kelly had left and he was like the only star left on the network. And so he knew that he could and in fact ended up doing a hundred million dollar four year deal with Fox, which was enormous. He knew that he could get like a hundred million dollars if he stayed. And he also knew that if this lawsuit came out, then he would get nothing. And he also knew that his entire career as a best-selling author, where he makes extra umpteen million dollars, was largely contingent on the fact that he was on television every night. And so put that all together and you get this massive carrot and this massive stick that you, you know, he ends up with nothing if the suit is public and he ends up with something more than $100 million if he makes it go away. And that gives, gives him just a huge amount of incentive to pay a huge amount of money to make it go away. So fundamentally, it's worth more to him than it is to Fox to settle this. So, he, you know, she's going to put, or I guess... Or like she she kind of played her cards well. Yeah, and that extremely she, yeah, well, she, yeah. He was then in a position where it's not surprising that he probably paid out more than he may have been likely to in a different scenario. Right, yeah. and because she was semi-formally his lawyer as well. She probably knew all of the details of all of the previous settlements and how that worked and how to negotiate these things and so on and so forth. No, which which is interesting also because... I, I know people could perhaps read that and say like, oh, well, you know, she's she's putting him in a bad position or something. But I think it's actually um, quite the opposite. Whereas for most women, it is so incredibly expensive to bring these cases for the women. And most of the women who are sexually harassed are not super high level people. So you often don't have the resources. So I I, I think it's it's good when we see women who are have exactly. the ability to. Yeah. I mean, it's it's deeply unfair on some level that if you have the the powerful women with resources like Lise Wheel and Gretchen Carlson, they get eight-figure settlements and everyone else makes do with like 50 grand and that's agreed but at least i I think it's important that they're bringing these things public because then it does make it easier for other women to come out and also be believed i wonder um you know just, just talking about how only some women can actually kind of actually take a stand on these. I, I do wonder if all these revelations are going to lead to changes in policy, if you're going to see maybe companies pressured out of using arbitration in these situations, things along those lines, because those are some of the things that keep women silent. The NDA agreements, right. uh, non-disclosures, those have kind of been, been in the spotlight thanks to Harvey Weinstein. He made everyone who went into a settlement sign one of those. Now, you know, you're starting to hear whispers about reform. New York City is thinking about actually banning NDAs in these circumstances. And, the, and one of but, Harvey Weinstein's assistants is actually actually gone public in sort of violation of her NDA yeah. and said, mm-hmm. well, come sue me. And the the crazy little factoid about that was that after she signed the NDA, it was so secret that she wasn't even allowed to keep her own copy of it. <laughs> Jesus. But I mean, Gee, that doesn't surprise me. But yeah, just, That's actually, actually not that uncommon. But how do you know what's in the NDA if you don't have a copy? Well, you were supposed to have read it before you signed it. This is, I mean, but... I mean, that's the thing, right? Like women are having to break the law in order to make change right now. And there just should that should not be the case that there need to like if if this just wave of revelations does not lead to some sort of change in the way we we deal with the stuff or the rights that we we give um, the harassed, it's going to be really frustrating. I completely agree with you. I think that that is going to be the only thing that actually changes anything, because when you see the policies that are currently implemented, the like nonsense videos you have to watch like those do absolutely nothing yeah because we can't rely on 
every harasser being famous enough that yeah. that you People know a, a large group of women are going to get attention for going public on Twitter with it, or that a New York Times reporter is going to go investigate the rumor mill. You know, that's it's just not going to happen often yeah. enough. I mean, and even though we're seeing, you know, some of these men suffer repercussions now, um, it's not going to have. It's not going to, you know, that's not going to discourage every no. would-be predator. So obviously not. And so, like, on to end this segment on a slightly downbeat note, um, you know, a startlingly similar list of allegations against Donald J. Trump did absolutely no visible right. harm to his campaign. And now we are hearing that Sinclair TV is still very, very interested in signing one Bill O'Reilly mm -hmm, to right. appear on their station. So I guess my question for Anna is, um, what the fuck? <laughs> it doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, yeah. this is this is the kind of thing that happens in every industry. People want to appear like they're doing the right thing. So when allegations immediately come out, everyone's like, oh, my gosh, this is awful. Wait a little while. Some If it's if it's a well-known man, eventually he lands on his feet. Well, I, I want to push back on that a tiny bit. Um, I do think at the risk of getting a little bit political, there, there is a, a conservative liberal dynamic at play here. Um, like, and uh, people have kind of written about this and looked at it. You know, sexual harassment is just not as big an issue among core conservative, the core conservative audience. Yeah. Among, even among Fox News viewers, you know, the issue with a guy having Ailes O'Reilly, like you said, Felix, wasn't necessarily that they were going to hemorrhage viewers because of it. It was maybe advertisers would bail. And more importantly, the deal in Britain with Sky, the fact that it could get in the way of uh, regulators there, you know, approving that 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 merger or that uh, acquisition. Um, conservatives don't generally get worked up about this. They are willing to, um, you know, vote for a president who has these accusations and they're willing to, in fact, in some ways it may draw them closer to yeah. uh, a figure like O'Reilly because they feel like he's somehow been unfairly railroaded out of his, uh, you know, uh, off of the, off of television. Yeah. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, so let's talk about NEOM. NEOM, all caps. So, so first of all, let's talk about Davos in the desert. <laughs> Yes. What was Davos in the desert? So this was a three-day event in Saudi Arabia where so many of the heavy hit heaviest hitters in uh, in finance here, BlackRock, Blackstone, HSBC, um, Credit Suisse, anyone you can think of um, came to this to this conference as a way of essentially trying to get a piece of the honeypot that is the kind of quote-unquote new Saudi Arabia. Or in that, like... If and when Saudi actually manages to sell all or some of Aramco, which is their oil company, that's going to release 
bazillions of dollars, I believe. Is yes, the and it's not term, even... And it, everyone wants some of those bazillions. Yes, and it's not even just Aramco. Ramco is definitely the biggest, but it's also lots of other state assets that they're looking to sell. Also, they now have a very, very large sovereign wealth fund that everybody wants some of that money to manage. And they've already given like $50 billion to SoftBank. Yep. And, yeah. and also a, a, a big portion to um, Blackstone as well, the yeah. infrastructure fund. And they also had a big investment in Uber that was direct. So they are just, you know, the ones with the money. Everyone wants the money. And so they decide, or rather the new 32-year-old leader of Saudi Arabia decides that he's going to have a Davos of his own in yes. Riyadh because why not? He's And so he puts out the call and everyone dutifully turns up and appears on panels and, you know, talks about synergies or whatever fourth industrial revolution or whatever it is that people do in these places and um and then they they you know shake hands with with whichever important saudi person is there and they hope that that's going to help them you know position themselves to get the big deals it's all kind of a little bit skeevy and we wouldn't really it would all be just like okay this is how business is done in saudi arabia except for then in the middle of this bizarre um conference they announce a whole new city yes the uh, a great product reveal that's it really like, is yes it's so much like take steve that. jobs at the end that's so much better <laughs> just than one more thing anything apple has ever done just one more thing a 500 billion dollar city anyway yes it's i mean yes so like many things Mohammed bin Salman, i.e. MBS, has announced, this is almost certainly never going to happen. <laughs> uh, he tends to speak in hyperbole. He's not really great at following through with things, but this is all of one piece. And I actually think this is why this is important. It's not just, I mean, the story is bonkers. Um, so but let's, uh, so let's just okay. like, very quickly explain. So, so the story is that there's a particularly barren and uninhabited corner of Saudi Arabia up by the... Um, Gulf of Aqaba, where they have decided that they want to build essentially a second Dubai. Yeah, a, a giant city that's supposed to be entirely powered with clean energy. Everything will be with robots. <laughs> and to be fair, there's a fuck ton of solar energy around there because it's just desert. There's nothing there. And it's mind-blowingly hot and why anyone would want to live there, I have no idea. And they've already announced that, you know, for all that it's going to be a kind of special economic zone and there's going to be a lot more freedoms there than in the rest of Saudi Arabia. There still isn't going to be alcohol. Right. But this brings me to Tehran and Sanofir. Oh, God, finally. Yes. It all makes sense. So um, if you look at where Neom is on the map... Will be on the map. It's right opposite Sharm el-Sheikh, basically. It's it's sort of... If you go to Sharm and then you just cross over the Gulf of Aqaba, it's right there. And in between Sham and Neom are, are these two little islands called Tehran and Sanofir, oh, which, are, which are uninhabited islands. And the one thing that doesn't really happen in the world these days is countries just giving islands to other countries. Like if you own an island and then some other country has claim on it, you have huge fights and you might well go to war and like or this, this will go on forever pretty quietly. I mean, it caused a certain amount of um, a minor In Egypt, there was a lot Egypt. of, yeah. But, like, basically, Egypt woke up a couple years ago and said, we own these two islands of Tehran and Sanofi, which are kind of the islands between Sharm and Neon, and 
Neom and Sharm are going to have to be connected by a bridge so that the people in Neom can drive over the bridge to Sharm and have their or have their self driving car take them. Yeah, uh, oh, there you go. Or just or just do it in the monorail or whatever amazing hyperloop thing that they managed to build. Um, but yeah, so Egypt just gave Saudi Arabia these islands. And now they are Saudi, and they used to be Egyptian. And I i can't remember the last time that I saw two countries just sort of come sign a treaty and say, oh, yeah, it used to be mine, and now it's yours. Well, so is Egypt doing this basically because it's hoping Sham will become like the Macau for Neon? Like, is that sort of like it'll be where people go to uh, have a it will be like the den of iniquity where all the business people show up. Or is no. like, what is the logic? There? Yeah, Why I mean, Sham they... has lost a lot well, of tourism since there was there was a bomb there a couple yeah. of years ago, and it used to be. And it's you know, I mean, it still is amazing diving, and it's a beautiful place. But the tourists are not turning up there that like they used to, and this would certainly help bring them back. Yeah, I mean, although I. I could be entirely wrong. I mean, I do remember when this was first happening and there was, I mean, there was a lot of controversy in Egypt. They were not, the Egyptians were not happy about this. But my sense is that this had much more to do with just like machinations in that region in terms of Saudi power and how they were able to get those islands back. I don't really think this was Egypt being like awesome. Now, Do, people do, gonna... do you think, I mean, it could possibly have been related to Sisi suddenly seeing a very large increase in his Swiss bank account. You really never know yeah. when it comes to these things. Exactly. So, but Anna, I want to revisit your skepticism. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, Anna, you, how can you honestly believe yeah. that this $500 billion city is not going to pop up overnight? Oh, my favorite thing about how, it is how, that the entire city is going to be an artificially intelligent computer. Like, the whole city. It's like computer wait, number one is Neom. Wait, so this really is... Wait, there, That's I, what that, I'm saying. That, that really is a sci-fi move. Wait, there, yes. is, there definitely has to be one. It's like some Philip K. Dick thing where like the city has a brain or exactly. something. Exactly. Some, that's amazing. Um, it's but like wait, an anthill. So how long did it take to build uh, Dubai? Like, how long... How long? Like, modern Dubai. Like, what... Like, Dubai wasn't built in a day. No, but, Dubai was not built in a day, but it was built relatively it. quickly, yeah. I mean, so if they got the money... It's like, not that simple. I mean, they, remember that, like, that they were going to have that uh, in Riyadh, they were supposed to have this massive financial district that was going to have, like, two million people. There are currently 5,000. They're real. I mean, granted, okay. Look. I mean, there was, if, if you haven't read um, A Hologram for the King or um, watched the movie with Tom Hanks, which was made of it, it's this Dave Eggers book, it's kind of a wonderful portrait of just, like, these crazy Saudi projects which wind up going nowhere. Exactly, because who's building it? I don't know. Because this is part of the problem. <laughs> I mean, like, the... This well, I mean, they're gonna—they would have to bring in tons and tons and tons of workers because this is part of a larger problem. But that's that's what the Middle East specializes. Yes, I know. Just like yeah. bringing in tons of workers to uh, in in dubious humanitarian conditions to build mega yes. projects. Yes, and this is at the same that's time their core competency, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and this is at the same time that they're supposed to be cutting spending. At the same time that they're supposed to be reducing subsidies. At the same, <laughs> this is at the same time as they're engaging in all of these conflicts in Yemen, in Syria. Okay, the beef so, with cutter. But could let me let me play devil's advocate here. I might not be the best devil's advocate, but I'm gonna try. Could this be another part of their attempt to transition away from and and like just from being a pure oil economy? Oh, it is. It's, yeah. so, it's I mean, all part of it. It's, that, all, yeah, it's like, all part of vision. Could be, I'm sorry. Yeah. Let me rephrase. Sorry. Could it be like a, could this be like a smart part of it? Because 
No, 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 no. It, we're not arguing the merits of oh, building so, a city. We're just saying it's not going to okay, happen. Okay, but you got but do okay, so you guys think it actually is a smart move if they could theoretically. Well, they could actually do it. I mean, if if he could actually engage in a lot of the reforms he's talking about, opening up the economy, getting in more foreign investment, getting people like because right now like two thirds of the population that are working work for you know the state companies. And they don't really do anything. I mean, if he could actually modernize the economy and that would be wonderful. It's never going to happen. Okay. Right. I mean, it's a, it's still far from clear that they're even going to manage to get Aramco listed, which is yes. kind of step one on all of this. It's There are so many dominoes which need to fall before, you know, you wake up one morning and there's this sort of Oz-like city in the middle of the desert. And yeah, and it's a really kind of, I mean, it's strategically important location right at the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula. But it's also, you know, as anyone who's seen Lawrence of Arabia will tell you, like the most inhospitable place on the planet. And it regularly gets up to like 50 degrees Celsius. It's not somewhere you want to have so, so, a city. So, yeah, that is one thing I immediately started thinking about when I um, read this story or read about it. It was just most of Saudi Arabia is supposed to be just heat blasted thanks to global warming. I mean, mm-hmm. it will almost entirely be uninhabitable. But I mean, that place is already... At that point, maybe this is like a trial run. You build somewhere, it's like, okay, no one could live here anyway. If we can make a city thrive right. in this it's environment, maybe we can like, you know, salvage Riyadh down the line when we have to. I don't know. That's just the theory. Oh, yeah. and, and just for the record, um, Dan, you, you can come in and do – Dan, you just made this unbelievable face when I said 50 degrees Celsius. He's like, no one knows. We're American here. We don't know about Celsius. I mean, it's, it's true. It is. It's, <laughs> it's totally true. true. I, Dan, I what is 50 it. degrees Celsius in, in whatever you speak in America? Felix, it's 122 degrees Fahrenheit. Is it really? I thought it was more than that. I mean, that's that's fucking that's, hot. That's a lot. That's pretty hot. Yeah, I don't yeah, care yeah, if okay. that, I don't care yeah, if it's it, a dry heat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. All right, let's have a, lo- a fun little Bitcoin segment. Cryptocurrency. I, I hinted at this last week, I think, or maybe it was the week before when I was talking about Mike Novogratz, formerly of Fortress, now of some new hedge fund that he's trying to seed, where he's decided all he's going to do is play the bubble. And if where there's a bubble and where there's volatility, traders can make money. Turns out he's not the only person thinking along these lines. Yeah, exactly. There's a DRW in Chicago. It's a proprietary trading firm and is basically a a small percentage of their workers are now going to be simply engaging in trading on, you know, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies with the idea that there's no volatility anywhere else. So here's one place where there's volatility. We don't care if it's worth anything. We don't care if it all blows up eventually. We're going to make our money while we can. So... I saw I, I saw this and I kind of dropped it just like you imagine traders as like zombies who need to like eat volatility instead of brains. And so they're just lurching towards Bitcoin because that's like their source of nourishment right now. But I mean, 
I guess the first question I think a lot of people would have about this and is just why is volatility so necessary for, for them? Like, why is like just I feel like a lot of listeners are probably wondering, why is this what attracts them like, you know, bees to honey? Because if you can't buy something at a lower price and then sell it for a higher price. Yeah. There are basically two ways to. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is actually it's kind of interesting. There, there are basically deeply fundamentally two ways to make money as a trader. Yeah. The first one is buy low, sell high. Yeah. And if a asset is going boringly sideways, there's no, you can't do that. You can't make money doing that. Um, you really want it to be able to go up. And then if it's going up and down a lot, every time it goes down, you can buy. Every time it goes up, you can sell. And then you do a lot of buying low, selling high, and you make a billion dollars and you retire to your yacht. Um, but then there's a second way of making money when you're a trader, which is sell high by low, um, where you find something which is very expensive and then you short it and then you cover your short once it falls. Ah, okay. And traders basically in in 99% of asset classes around the world make no distinction between this. They're just as happy going short as they are going long. You know, it's just as easy to go short as it is to go it long. It is riskier, though. I mean. it, it is a bit riskier, and so you have to be a little bit more sophisticated. But people make a lot of money making short-term short bets, just saying, I think this is going to tick down, so I'm going to short it right here, and then I'm going to cover my short in three hours and make some money. That bit yeah. is the bit which no one has really managed to institutionalize in the crypto coin space well because it strikes me as like completely fucking bonkers right oh, yeah. like because you know with shorting your your losses are potentially infinite yeah. um and you see these giant spikes in crypto prices and no one really knows what based on nothing yeah I mean, it's like it could just be irrational exuberance it could be china some people think sometimes but then decide it isn't china at others it could be drugs it just like, no one really yeah. knows and so it's it seems to me kind of just like gambling yeah well no i mean shorting is is dangerous and you can lose a lot of money in it and anyone who remembers the history of the porsche share price will tell you that you don't need to be in crypto coins to see crazy irrational spikes wait. which will um you know bankrupt a whole bunch of people who are short wait what 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 happened to porsche's share price i don't know this story <laughs> uh so the the there was the, the mother of all short squeezes um in porsche and I believe that at some at one point Porsche was like technically the most valuable company in all of Europe or something. It was certainly much more valuable than Volkswagen, which it was a subsidiary of. And um, essentially, what had happened is that a whole bunch of people had shorted Porsche because it was massively overvalued, and then there weren't enough shares to go around for them to cover their shorts. Oops. And um, and and the shares were closely held by by Porsche itself, and by a you know, and basically what happened is they couldn't all cover, cover and so they were yeah. all desperately like falling over each other to try and cover, and it wound up there was this crazy spike. It was one of the most bonkers stories like of the past few years. So sorry for getting us on that tangent, but I was just, I was just curious. Um, but so you've got these traders stampeding or I guess lurching, like I said, to, towards cryptocurrencies. What's even weirder to me about it, though, is that some of these are high high frequency trading firms, or and like you Which, can't do high no. frequency trading. <laughs> that, with, that was my I mean, favorite part of the story is that like these are high frequency trading firms, and they're engaged. They're trading on like Skype. Yeah. And like by the phone. Like it's it's I amazing. Mean, yeah. So I mean so I think that is that doesn't sort of strike me as 
that weird. The, the way that high-frequency trading works is you just want to be able to trade faster than the other guy. It's not that you need to do it within milliseconds. It's just that you need to be faster than the other guy. And so yeah. long as you, like, you know, especially in Bitcoin, the latency is very long and it can take, you know, half an hour to settle a trade. But you can, if you do it in half an hour and the other guy is doing it in 31 minutes, then you're faster than the other guy and that's the only thing that matters. Yeah, No, it's true, although it's interesting. It's usually also with in high-frequency trading, you're making your money on volume. Like, it's small movements you're taking advantage and of. And that is why these traders are now emerging and haven't been around for the past few years because it's only now that we have enough market cap that you can actually get the volume necessary to make money. If if all of Bitcoin was worth less than a billion dollars, then there was no real opportunity there. Now, the market cap of Bitcoin plus Ether plus Litecoin plus all of the others, and, you know, Ripple and all the rest of it, is is large enough that there's opportunity to make money up, make money down. And also, increasingly, there are um, true believers out there who are sitting on large stocks of Bitcoin and Ether and just saying, I'm going to hold this for 100 years. And hey, yeah, if you want me to lend it out to you and do a kind of repo transaction so that you can short it, fine. I, you know, I will do that contract you're a large chicago-based financial company i you know i'm not going to worry too much about you defaulting on your margin yeah it it does amaze me though because it just seems like i mean we i think we could all agree that obviously like none of this cryptocurrency is an actual like real asset so then i guess if you're saying it's like a currency but then it seems to be just a tool of trading and nothing else. Right. But like that's, it, it's that's glorious. Sort of, that's that, like the, it's the purest form of trading. As I say, it's almost I mean that makes it more like a currency. And so I Yes and no because But so could this actual I mean so now that you have traders or like firms that are that are trying to make money off it, could this lead to kind of a more liquid market and actually help it act a little bit more functionally? So the shorting, yes. I mean, so so Anna says no, I say yes. If um, Fortress and all these other companies really start managing to construct an infrastructure where you can short these assets as well as go long, then yes, that will definitely help liquidity because one of the reasons why you've had these bizarre volatility spikes and and, dis- and difficulty trading it is precisely because there was no mechanism for shorting it. If you have a mechanism for shorting it, then at the margin, yes, that will make it more liquid and easier to trade. Perhaps. But again, this is a currency that you can't really use to buy anything. You simply are using it to sell to someone else because you think there will always be someone else down the line who will think it's more expensive. It's not an asset. It's not based on anything. Sure. I, it's... I- <laughs> Yeah, that that's all taken. Uh, yeah, I, I yeah. just I look short term. Sure, makes sense. If 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 all if if you know if you're not an investor and you're just a trader, fine. Like, ride, go to it. Ride that bubble. Exactly. Like, <laughs> okay. More power to you. But do I think this is actually going to become like a real market as it currently exists? No. Well, all I can say, and by the way, you are wrong about people not using it to buy anything Drugs. because I. Just bought a bottle of Fort Hamilton rye whiskey with like some minuscule fraction of a Bitcoin that I happen to have lying around. And I was like, free whiskey. Fair. But okay. Again, that even goes to it though. When you get a currency that becomes so incredibly expensive, it becomes 
essentially useless for day-to-day transactions. And I still hold, like, you have Bitcoin of what? It's like $6,000 or something. Like, Fractional to one bit- payments, man. Yeah, I paid like 0.01 Bitcoins or whatever So you're telling me that today, whiskey. with one Bitcoin, I can buy as many Big Macs as I could buy with $6,000. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I don't understand what you mean. Yeah, of course. Like that's uh, that, no, well, I no. can't. In what universe can I? Like, well, I, it's they, just it's, if they start accepting Bitcoin. So. But they don't. That's and, <laughs> yes. Just, wait, and okay. a short circuit. Oh, all right, all right, okay. So Anna, like we, okay. I, I'm, are you just asking about whether McDonald's accepts Bitcoin? No, it's just Big Macs are often used as the way when you're comparing currencies. That's it's a. But my point is that I'm not arguing that this couldn't exist as a currency and that in small measures it may not exist as a currency but in general it has a value that often doesn't relate to real transactions except people simply trading it with the idea that someone else down the line wants it more yeah and yeah and, we and it, all agree on that yes again yeah. but again like i <laughs> well no so I, I get what you mean because so forex markets are driven in uh, a, a in big part by trade, right? Like foreign exchange, like Wait, where okay, Bitcoin but yeah, is. Yeah, no. Mu- I, I well, would, no. No, I mean, I think they're not. I, I, I really think they're not. You, I mean, Every so often there will be a massive, massive, like real money foreign exchange transaction which might move some FX rate a little bit. But overwhelmingly, um, FX rates are about what econ- interest rates. What, what, what not, econ- they're what, about interest rates. They're not about trade. What, what economists will tell you with that is that, yes, day-to-day movements are not driven by trade, but in terms of setting like the total supply yeah. of money available, it actually does have a big regulating role. But yeah, no, so we, we, we is, agree that there yeah. isn't a there there. We yeah. agree that like stocks are real things, well, no, they're real I'm, cash flows, no, bonds so are real I, things. I'm trying to tease out Anna, what I think is Anna's point here, which is that unlike currencies, which actually do have some grounding in a in real goods and services, right. Bitcoin doesn't even really no, have that. No, that's what I it's mean. Like on the, the, it's on and, this and it's all based on this idea that it will essentially keep appreciating, which makes well, zero okay, sense. Okay, but so no. I mean, okay, so again, like I'm as much of a Bitcoin skeptic as anyone, and I will totally agree that like Bitcoin isn't really a thing and it isn't really a currency. Um, and... Sure. Like, do I believe that Bitcoin is going to continue to go up? No, I don't. And I still don't see why that doesn't mean that I can't trade it. I and can I'm not saying you can't. No, okay. you can trade anything. Okay. So that that's... I feel like that's that's basically what we were talking about here. Like, I wasn't trying to litigate, no, like, I... is is Bitcoin a real thing? I was just saying, like, is this an interesting opportunity to make money yeah, by, and... by trading it up and down? And yeah, I think it is. I'll, I'll totally agree with you. And this will just, though, it's one of those examples where when... There, look, I think there are lots of people in finance who actually engage in capital allocation and <laughs> have some actual real value. This, to me, is the part of finance that's just like, seriously? Yeah, this is, this is socially useful. I think, actually, this is why Anna is upset and we're not. Yeah. Is because we, we, <laughs> you don't generally, we generally assume that most of finance is socially useless. And so we see another bit of socially useless finance and, and we're like, it's socially useless. Whereas Anna has this bizarre belief that there is actually social utility to finance. And that's why she gets yeah. upset about Bitcoin. I, I'm mostly just aesthetically impressed. <laughs> that's all. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget 
giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The seven numbers round. Jordan, can you remember your number without opening your laptop? Yeah, I think so. What's your number? $200. What's that? It's how much CVS might pay per share to buy Aetna, uh, creating a healthcare industry monstrosity. Um, this is like this is a big deal. This is getting a lot of people, an interesting intersection of, of people really uh, frightened and excited. Uh, so uh, I, as, as a normal human being, I have no idea whether 200 is a large number or a small number or what it means in real life. What's, the, what's, what's, the, what's the like value of Aetna? What, where would that value Aetna at? Uh, I can't remember the exact number it would value Aetna at, but combined, I think the, I, the point is they're going to pay a, a pretty big premium to buy this company. And if they were to merge, I, I think one of the stats I saw said they'd have more revenue than Apple. I mean, they'd be a big goddamn company um, and a big player in healthcare. And it's, a you know, we've seen this happen before where you take a insurer and merge it with what's called a pharmacy benefits manager. And most people think of CVS as their local pharmacy. Really, their business at this point is becoming managing prescriptions for insurers and hospitals and things like that. Um, They're a, a enormous middleman in the health in, in the healthcare industry. And seeing these two giants combine, I think people are only, you know, it's the rumors have been circulating for about a day, but we're going to see a lot of people grappling with what that might mean for patients, for hospitals, for prices, for all sorts of things. What do we think it could mean? Um, You know, one, I think this is a very long conversation. There's, There's some, you know, there's been a lot of debate about whether or not it's actually better to combine a pharmacy benefits manager with a with an insurer and if that could do some good i know some people are actually very afraid of just the idea of a company like uh etna having all of its competitors basically secrets because of all the business that cvs did with them it's all very preliminary but just like again it's just kind of creating this monster so it's like what might this monster do or could it maybe possibly even weirdly do some good yeah my my number is seven which is the number of men on the new standing committee of the basically there there are three numbers which there are three numbers which matter in China. There's the guy at top, Xi Jinping, like he's number one, number yeah. one guy, and he's now like personally written into the Chinese constitution. <laughs> yes, um, and so like he is like clearly way more powerful and influential than we can remember any Chinese leader being for a very long time. Um, Beneath him are seven men. Um, They are the standing committee. And so the number is seven. Like, yeah, they're all men. Yeah. Shocking. But they are now part of a 25-member Politburo. And guess what? There is one woman in the Politburo. Sunshun Lan. So there you go. That's that's what counts for women's progress does, in China. Does she have? Is she like a, a princess Ling or some sort? Like, does she have like? No, I don't she know is what, the leader. She's the leader. No, no. I mean, like, does she have like? What's her? <laughs> we, we can't. We can't keep on talking. She like this. Yeah, that's it, right. it Oh, really sorry. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I. I it took skip. me a second. That I was like, wait. Okay. Wait, yeah. okay, okay. But, um, Anna, what's your yeah. number? Although it's very funny, I almost used that. 
I'm not even joking. I actually almost used because I was, it was the image of like the seven men anyway. But, and they're um, all I, like between 60 and 65. Yes. <laughs> and they, yeah. It's kind of... um, so, no, but my number is actually $28. Okay. It's so a pretty low number. But in this, in other sense, it's kind of high. It is now the amount of money it will cost for some cars to drive into the center of London. Oh. Um, which I actually think is awesome. Yeah, great. No, I think this is great. Yeah. I'm a big believer in congestion pricing, which they've had for um, quite a while. They're now adding this um, T-charge, which is essentially an emission charge for all cars that don't meet Euro 4 emission standards, which is essentially any car before 2006. So for those cars, when they come in during work hours, $28 every time. So people can p- complain so in Staten Island about $17. <laughs> con- con- congestion pricing is is one of my favorite subjects, and I have talked at great length about it. And maybe we will do a whole like segment on congestion pricing because it's fascinating. Um, But what's happening in London and also what's happening in New York where the governor of New York State wants to implement congestion pricing in New York City is that it has moved from what it used to be in London and what it still is to a certain degree in Singapore, which is a way of trying to reduce traffic congestion and become much more of a simple revenue generation Mm -hmm. tax. And we can talk more about why that is on a future episode of slate money probably after november the 15th when we are going to be live at the bell house in brooklyn talking about food with francis lamb of the splendid table um james truman the former editorial director of conde nast who now has a whole bunch of restaurants in new york and who's a lovely chap and you I hope if you come along, come along to slate.com slash live and check us out there. Also listen to Lexicon Valley, which is hosted by John McWhorter, which is a podcast about language and syntax and etymology and neurolinguistics and how languages develop similar words for mum and dad. I don't know. All manner of amazing things. John McWhorter, he's, you know, a grand poobar at Columbia. He knows what he's talking about. So listen to Lexicon Valley every other Tuesday at slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. And with that, I think that's it. Uh, many thanks to Dan Schrader. Email us on slate at slate.com. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. <laughs> This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.